Hi, and welcome back to, or welcome to, for the first time, to the Redheaded Preacher. I'm the Redheaded Preacher. My name is Richard Lanford. I'm the pastor of St. Peter's United Church of Christ in Skokie. We are an open and affirming congregation within the United Church of Christ. And we're also the first congregation organized in Skokie, which was then called Nile Center, way back in 1867. Today's message is called that dot 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 like fill in the blank is to die for and our scriptures are Genesis 17 verses 1 through 7 and 15 and 16 the epistle is Romans 4 verses I think it's 12 through 23 I'm not positive our lector will announce it and our gospel reading from which this message springs is Mark 8 verses 31 through 38. The Sunday is the second Sunday in Lent, February 28th, 2021. Just think, the very next day begins the month of March. And so, asking God's blessing on what we are about to listen to, let us listen. Our reading from Genesis is chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, and then verses 15 through 22. In chapter 12, God called Abram to leave his homeland and relatives and to go to a land that God would show him. God promised him an heir. 24 years later, our patriarch to be is still waiting. When Abram was 90 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abraham, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land where you are now an alien, all the land of Canaan, for a perpetual holding, and I will be their God. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall give rise to nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed, and said to himself, Can a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Can Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Eshmael might live in your sight. God said, No, but your wife Sarah shall bear you a son, and you shall name him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will bless him and make him fruitful and exceedingly numerous. He shall be the father of twelve princes. 
and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah should, shall bear to you at this season next year. And we, when he had finished talking with him, God went out from Abraham. This ends the reading from Genesis. Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the Church of Rome. He is connecting the faith of Abraham with the faith of believers in Jesus, explaining that in each case, God's righteousness exists and God's promises are received. The reading is Romans 4, verses 13 through 25. Paul wrote, For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of all of us, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, hoping against hope, he believed that he would become the father of many nations. According to what was said, so numerous shall your descendants be. He not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now the words, it was reckoned to him, were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses, and was raised for our justification. This ends the reading from Romans. This morning the Gospel is Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. Two weeks ago, we heard the story of the Transfiguration. This is what happened and what Jesus said six days before that. This happens right after Simon Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Messiah. Then Jesus began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me 
and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Here ends the reading from Mark in our scriptures for today. With thanks to God, may God show us how to live out in our own lives what we have heard from the Word. Well, through St. Peter's, I subscribe to a preaching resource called Homiletics. I don't always use it, but I usually check it. This Sunday's portion offered a small or a smaller than, you know, there's a big piece and then smaller pieces. And this, it offered this smaller piece about the gospel passage, which we heard Katie read. It said this about, it said this to its preaching subscribers. And I quote, the sermon I don't want to preach. It's best to leave this text alone. If the preacher grabs this text and preaches faithfully, she or he will make people really uncomfortable. Why? Because taking up a cross is not comfortable. It used to be that we could carry our own suitcase with nice handles to the train or airport, and we thought nothing about it. Now we have wheels to make it easier. Even backpacks now have wheels built in, like it's too much work to shoulder the packs on our backs and carry them to the terminal. So how are people who consider carrying a travel bag with too much work going to embrace the idea of taking up a cross? Well, it might be okay, but the cross has wheels. Perhaps the preacher could work with this homiletically. What are the wheels that make that might, just might ease the pain? Or one can be brave and declare that the cross of Jesus Christ does not come with wheels. Sorry. Well, first, I'd like to say that that's a little tough on persons who have a good reason for wanting wheels on their backpacks. Ask my wife when she was commuting to work regularly back in the day. She had those, and they were used, and there's a reason they were used. Secondly, although it's true this is not a passage many Christians call their favorite, I think the writer sells disciples a little short. Parents are people for whom I have a tremendous amount of respect, if not also awe. When Beth and I were thinking if God was calling us to have children, we talked with neighbors who had kids. Jerry, whom I've quoted from this pulpit before, said to us, think about all the things you like to do and then not doing them for the next 10 years. Was that an exaggeration? I cannot say. What I do know is that good parents are willing to do anything, set aside anything for the good of their daughters and sons. They do refrain from stuff they used to be able to do before kids because such sacrifices are usually necessary and often carry their own blessing. You do what needs to be done. Willingly, you sacrifice for their benefit. It's not even a question. Parents will, and sometimes have literally, given up their lives for their children. So why should this teaching by Jesus be such a downer? or uncomfortable. Well, a little detour. 
There are a few phrases about food that, because I think a little literally sometimes, and actually that can make life a little more interesting. Uh, there are some phrases that do make me uncomfortable. One is, these chocolate muffins are sinfully delicious. Sinfully delicious, that's a good thing. It's good to be sinful or to be so tasty that they has to be breaking some kind of holy law. Anyway, the other is, those chocolate chip muffins are to die for. Really? Now there are movements and people and things to die for, right? Parents for their kids, and perhaps children and youth have the same commitment for their parents or friends. Those in the armed forces and others, including firefighters and police, have to be prepared to give their lives for their duty, for their country, or for a greater good. So many have. During Black History Month, among others, we remember our African-American fellow Americans who died in the pursuit of racial and economic justice, a struggle for which is not over. They did die for something, and for some ones, not a sinfully delicious tiramisu from Aunt Beatrice, when she says it's to die for. And we know someone else who died for others. Jesus. He died a horrible death after a brutal living that some people did not survive. He did it for people for those who, uh, who mock those who believe in him, for people who killed and in some places still kill his followers. He did it for the jerk who cut you off in traffic and flipped you the bird, and he did it for the coworker who tries to undermine you. He did it for all those who thoughtlessly, habitually take his name in vain, and for those who, for one reason or another, made a wreck of their lives. He did it for you and me, for our parents and siblings, our spouses, partners and heroes, children and traitors. God so loved the whole world that he freely gave his only son, who was given in many ways, who gave in many ways, and ultimately was given up. Jesus was not going to die for any delicious kosher treat, but he did die for saints and sinners alike, including us. So in what we call the first passion prediction, there are three, Jesus says he knows this is coming. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. After the spat between him and Simon Peter, Jesus spoke to the crowd, as well as the disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their lives for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save them. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world 
forfeit their life. The one who knowing faces suffering and death tells others that following him means being ready for that possibility too. As Jesus said elsewhere, the servant is not above the master. The Christian church did face death for the first 300 years of its existence in the Roman Empire and in different places and in various ways, followers of the Lord still pay a heavy price for their loyalty to Jesus. Why? Parents sacrifice for their families. The enlisted sacrifice for duty and country. Volunteers pour themselves out for others. The reasons may be hard to articulate, but the most obvious motive I can think of for persons and congregations to deny their selves or their primal dedication to survival and self-will and comfort is love. Not emotions, necessarily, but love. You may really enjoy that homemade blueberry pie, but you're not going to die in order to have some. If someone bursts through your door with a gun and took it out from underneath your nose about to steal it, you're not going to kill or be killed over it. However, you will probably be ready to do physical damage or receive it if your family or friends are seriously threatened, maybe by that same person. Now, I'm not going to debate violence vis-a-vis nonviolence here. You get the point that at times like that, we are ready to lay our lives on the line and risk injury or death, take up our cross in a way out of love. Love for them love for them who we may not even know. Good Samaritans have died loving their unknown neighbor, trying to help. So if one of the main motivations for people sacrificing and denying themselves is love, do you and I love Christ enough to die for him if that became a real threat? American Christians do not live in 200 AD when faithful disciples were occasionally slaughtered for not renouncing Christ as Lord and for entertainment as well in the Colosseum under Nero. Christians being eaten by lions was a real thing at one time. Irenaeus, the Bishop of Smyrna around 150 AD, was publicly burned at the stake when he consistently refused to deny Christ. And we know that clearly because there's a record of it. There's a written record. To follow Jesus then, to be baptized then, and carry that name was risking your life. I believe this was done out of love and faith. Like Abraham and like Paul wrote about Abraham. We don't face that in these United States, at least not with a direct cause and effect. I was asked once if I thought Christianity was under attack. Not a war against Christmas, but a war against Christianity. I said I do not think so. I know that when you commit 
nonviolent civil disobedience for social or economic justice, which can be seen as part of Jesus' ethic to love your neighbor, and that we're all made in God's image, and that God's will love the world and suffer for that, then you're paying the price for being an ambassador for the values and the kingdom of God in a place or time run by those less genial forces. However, I do not think that is what the questioner had in mind. Sadly, I think that many who bear the name Christian often seem to be attacking those whom Jesus loves and to whom he came to minister. There is more Old Testament in their throats than Matthew 25, or the story of the Good Samaritan. I may digress, but let's go back to why we are willing to die for others, and in this case, too, for Jesus. Love, remember, love animated by faith and informed by hope. Well, given that basically we do not physically die for our faith, Jesus still tells those who want to follow him that we should at least be ready to. Our love for Jesus needs to be that deep. That's what he said. If anyone want to follow me, here's the deal. And in John 13, you show that you love Jesus by showing love for one another in acts of service. As we love those closest to us and would do anything of such love, Jesus is also worthy. He already loves us enough to have given his life for our pardon, for our eternal life, and for that sense of solidarity we know now that God has for those who suffer. But here's another way to look at it. Do you and I and our churches love Jesus Christ enough to deny our inner willful self let him call our shots. That's a personal form of sacrifice and death, although it's the kind that has to happen several times a day, every day, until it's not second nature, but ultimately becomes our first nature, by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. A prayer in the 12-step recovery movement has the words addressed to God, Relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may better do your will. Surrendering our will and turning it over to God, not only is a tremendous way to give God our burdens and sense of, sense of relief that we don't have to manage and run and control and know the resolution of everything. Sometimes when we've done all that we can and our burdens are there. We just, God, I'm leaving it up to you now. That can bring a tremendous relief. That's a way of surrendering our will. But there's also this other way of surrendering our willfulness. And turning it over to God. That's a way to die. So that Jesus and the gospel may live clearly and cleanly through us. The thought occurred to me that some of us may struggle with the phrase love for Jesus or loving Jesus. Some are skeptical that our love should be so lively and profound that whether it's physically or by the inner turnover of our will, we ought to be ready to let God's and not our own will direct our lives. 
Now, I do not like to use should be's or ought to be's very much. There it is. Do we love Jesus? Since love is behind our deepest sacrifice for anyone, or is he not really real to us? I know people can offer their lives either in a glorious burst of service or by daily helping others without complaint or regret, with no such glory or burst for ideas and causes that are not necessarily personal. But I think that for almost everyone, regardless, and there may well be exceptions, I think that for most everyone, such self-giving does come from the heart and from faith. There's a level of connection which makes the motivation not abstract, not only of the mind, not to disqualify or diminish that in any way, but there's a level of connection which makes our motivation or others' motivation not abstract, but relevant in the here and now, whether that motivation is something or someone we can meet or see or not. When folks are distant to talk of love for Jesus, to the point of being willing to take up that cross and follow it, trusting with that faith that this is not the end because Jesus was raised. There is vindication for work done in Christ's name. When folks are distant for this, I humbly suggest that those folks do a spirit check with them. Have they asked Jesus again? Have they encountered a sense of forgiveness? of internal healing somehow, an assurance of being loved by God regardless of the past, or hear an inner testimony of the Holy Spirit whispering, yes, I am here, I am with you always. Do such folks trust the love of Jesus Excuse me, yes. Do such folks trust this love of Jesus enough to follow him to their or our own version of Belgium? That is not for you or me to judge. Experiences are not the only way for Jesus to be real to us. God becomes real to people in various ways. One of the ways God becomes real to people is through other people. I still remember in confirmation class, we were talking about matters like this, and Molly Huckman gave this example. She heard in school of uh, during the plague in Lyon, France, and there were colonies of those who were they're going to die of the plague. But Christians believed that no one should die alone. Someone needed to walk with them in the mountains as they went to the valley, the shadow of death. And so people would go, knowing they were going to die, to minister to some of those people, and they did die. But others continued to do it. Or of the story of the in the Roman Empire when Christians would die for their faith, and there had to be a centurion or some soldier nearby, and it was not uh, unheard of for some of those to be so impacted by the witness of these people who were going to die that they stayed and joined them. God becomes real through believers who are willing to do whatever it takes in love, to love through those believers who work on their ability to be patient and kind, to speak out and act out for what is fair, 
who believe God is doing something holy over the long haul. The long haul. So take bad times in stride. And who by grace seem to always bring a resurrection spirit with them. Along Those people do not have something. They belong to someone who died for them, who rose for them, and for whom they too are willing not only to die if necessary, but also for us to live. And that's good news. And it can be done. Amen. You know, when I was preaching that sermon, I was um, almost moved to make it longer by starting a, a riff on If You Love Me, as Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. And how keeping his commandments, the commands to love, among others, Sermon on the Mount, etc., would be uh, how that's carrying our cross. Because um, sometimes loving others can be carrying a cross. Um, and that's where faith comes in, too, to keep it up, if that's indeed what we are called to do. But enough of sermonette number one after the sermon. Uh, thank you again for listening. As always, it's appreciated by all here at St. Peter's and of St. Peter's.